Father, we thank you that we can run to you, we can approach you boldly because by your own mercy and grace, though you are a king and the creator of all things, your favorite way to explain yourself to us is our heavenly Father. By the sacrifice and the willing death of your Son, you've given us life in your family. So help us pay attention to you, do what you say, trust you when we don't understand you, and love you above all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, Cross Point. My goodness, there's a lot of you here this morning in this service. Welcome. Very glad that you're here. Um, I'll tell you more about it later. I hadn't actually planned to say anything, and I didn't say anything in the first service, so you might want to share it with them or act very exclusive that uh, I said something to you that I didn't say to them. Orange County snobbery is kind of a, a worldwide fame that we have anyway, right? Um, in uh, Later this summer, uh, in the middle of next month, we are prayerfully planning and hoping to start a third Sunday morning service. Okay? So for those of you who don't like crowds, we hope that in the beginning we'll have plenty of space and then that we will have a crowded worship center in all three services as God continues to blow, uh, to, to bless and to guide our church. Uh, more on that coming later. Again, I wasn't planning to say anything, but when I saw how crowded the room was and saw some of you awkwardly looking at your neighbors like, please stop crowding me, I thought I might want to give you a little hope uh, for the very near future, Lord willing. Stay tuned. Uh, another ministry that I would like to uh, offer to you uh, soon, as soon as we can develop it together. There are just so many pressures pushing in on families. Our culture our society is in such turmoil, we are all experiencing such rapid change that I've been asked difficult questions pretty much every week by someone for two solid years. We've had a lot of private conversations, a great deal of biblical counseling, a lot of small group discussion, and my simple idea is to open that up and take that from private conversations and small group efforts to a more public ministry of teaching where you can not only be taught how to respond to the world we're currently living in, but also to ask your questions, share your stories, share in an appropriate setting the suffering and the pain that you're going through, all again with the aim of being better, more faithful, more Christ-like disciples of Jesus. So that will be coming soon. If you don't subscribe to uh, the church-wide email, please do so. You can indicate on the card that you'd like to do that, or you can go to the website and sign up for yourself at crosspointhb.org. I send one email a week on Thursday afternoon. If you're not receiving that, um, that's when you can look for it. I try very hard not to uh, clog people's email inboxes because aren't we all receiving quite enough email already? That's kind of exhausting. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to make you cringe anytime you see an email from me. But once a week to give you uh, previews and encouragement and uh, a look ahead, especially of what we're doing as a church family. Now, would you please open your Bibles with me in 1 Peter chapter 3. Only a few people in the room will understand what I'm about to tell you next. Only those who have taught the Bible and preached will understand that last night I had a preaching nightmare. Maybe if you've preached, you've had those. Everybody has nightmares. 
They normally correspond to something that's going on in your actual life. But it had been a long time since I had a preaching nightmare. Here's what happened. I was hospitalized, which was distressing enough. But then, for reasons known only to the dream, I was also preaching from the hospital bed with a laptop resting on my chest. And a large chunk of my family and a few church members were actually in the room while I was preaching, and part of the nightmare was, first of all, I'm hospitalized, and I don't know why, and that wasn't, very, that wasn't a very happy thought at probably two in the morning. But the people in the room weren't paying any attention to me whatsoever. In other words, the sermon was bombing, okay? I couldn't even hold the attention of the people who were bedside. So I was trying to reach through the camera and stay engaged with the audience I could not see, kind of giving mean side-eye glances at the people in the room who were talking ever and ever louder, and then a doctor came into the room and announced that I had just suffered a heart attack. And then I thought, okay, the dream's going to take a nice turn here because my loving family and these few select church members that are in the hospital room with me, they're going to turn and pay attention to me in my time of distress since I just had a heart attack. They talked and laughed all the louder... Meanwhile, the camera is still going, we're still streaming, so I'm receiving this news, trying to preach at the same time, and basically it was like two trains running headlong into each other and catching everything on fire. I woke up, I was very sad that I had suffered a heart attack and bombed a sermon that badly with no family or church support whatsoever. (laughs) And then I realized it was all a dream and I still had to preach this morning. So here we are. Why am I telling you all this, and why in the world is that relevant? Well, I don't know where dreams come from exactly, though I once read about, and in seminary I believe, I tried to figure out, based on recent scientific research at that time, where do dreams come from. I think I understand a little bit why that preaching nightmare was part of my night last night, because the passage we're about to read is one of the strangest and most difficult sections in the entire Bible. Here's why. We're reaching back 2,000 years in biblical history. The Apostle Peter is mentioning as facts things that the Bible itself barely mentions at all. And they're all supernatural. They have to do not only with God and with God's Son, Jesus Christ, they also have to do with angels. They have to do with imprisoned angels. And in the 21st century, it all sounds strange and hard to understand. I've got my work cut out for me this morning helping you understand this passage, especially when we come to the parts that are difficult really going to have a hard time explaining that to you, and I'm in good company because Martin Luther, a reformer 500 years ago, a noted Bible scholar and one of the most opinionated Christians in Christian history, came to this text and wrote this to help future preachers. Luther said, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure text than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. Well, that was super helpful to read, okay? (laughs) Martin Luther has 
no idea what to make of this. So here's some Bible reading tips to help you navigate this sermon and to help you understand the Bible as you read it and study it for yourself. Today's challenge is this. We need to understand a difficult part of God's Word to us so that we can live by the comfort that it announces. The Bible is good news. All of it. It's all intended to deliver and introduce to you good news in the person of Jesus Christ. Not all of it is pleasant. Some of it is purposely terrifying. But the parts of it that are threatening and menacing that deal with the reality of sin and the reality of death and the holiness of God who cannot tolerate sin in His presence, even those dark, menacing parts of the Bible are all designed through the darkness, through the menace, to introduce you to the rescuer. To make you aware that the life you're living in that you already know is so fragile and so difficult is fragile and difficult because it's been wrecked by sin. And above it all and behind it all stands a holy God who cannot and will not tolerate wickedness, evil, wretchedness, rebellion in his presence, but in his love sent his son to absorb all all of God's deserved and understandable anger about sin so that you and I could come to God. These hard passages, there's two. That's part of the difficulty. Peter talks about two difficult things, one after another, but the purpose of this passage, as is the purpose of the entire Scripture, is so that you can live by the good news, by the comfort that it's actually intended to explain to you. And here's the Bible reading tip. Start always with what is clear. Understand difficult passages in light of those that are simple. Anytime you're reading something in the Bible that you find difficult, I promise you, without exception... If you keep reading, if you look at that in its larger context, you will arrive at things that are easier to understand. You will come to truth that is accessible. So don't ever, this is how people end up in cults, don't ever go off on a tangent and build a doctrine or your life on something in the Bible that is hard to understand. Start with what is clear. Start with the parts that are loud and the parts that are difficult and obscure and quiet will fall into place and harmonize with what God already told you. The good news is that when God speaks to us in His Word, He uses words for the same reason we do. God meant to make Himself understood. The reason I'm speaking to you the way I am and the reason the nightmare was so nightmarish and I actually woke up heartsick, feeling like the biggest failure in Southern California is in the nightmare. I couldn't make myself understood. Other people didn't understand or care what was happening around me. God is a good communicator, and when he uses his word, he means for you to know who he is. He has said the parts that matter most clearly and loudly, and not only that, they're repetitive as well. Someone I worked with on preaching told me that in verbal communication, you have to say something three or four times for people for it to register. Anybody who's raised children knows that with kids, that number goes up even higher. 
Well, God says the same things, the things that matter most, the things that are clearest and most vital to understand, he says those from cover to cover. It's all the way through the same good, big ideas. And the good news is this, that Jesus died and rose from the dead in order to bring us to God. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 3. And let's read this passage that is going to begin with such clarity and such comfort and then descend into difficulty. 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter has been writing to suffering Christians, telling them two difficult things at once. That he understands that they're suffering and being grieved by various trials, as he says in the first chapter. And that their response is to remember that Jesus has saved them that they belong to him, that they already have a treasure waiting for them in heaven, that God will keep them safe to endure suffering the same way Jesus endured his. And while they lived in a world that did not like them and chosen instead to persecute them, that they should do all they could to submit to the human institutions that God had placed over them. Not a very popular message, not a very easy message that you as a Christian are going to suffer and your response is to submit not only to Christ, but to submit to the human institutions in your lifetime. Then we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, and for all of its difficulty, I have to tell you, I find this a word of comfort. Listen. For Christ also suffered... Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. If you're a Christian, does that verse make sense to you? If you're not, this verse may be a little obscure, but I bet you'll put some hooks on it from your memory and your experience in growing up in the United States, if you did, growing up in this area of California. I bet what Peter is referring to will become clear to you, even if you've never read this verse before. Christ also suffered once for sins. When did that happen? What is Peter referring to when he says that Christ also suffered once for sins? On the cross. What we remember on Good Friday is the central part of the story of Jesus. That Jesus, having no sin of his own, was sent by God himself to pursue the human race who had turned against God, wrecking and ruining themselves and everything they touched. In doing so, God in love had reached out to the fallen crown of his creation and pursued us to bring us back to himself. Christ also suffered once for sins. Here's the good news of the gospel. When Jesus is dying on the cross, the righteous is dying for the unrighteous. Jesus had no sins of his own. It was customary in a Roman crucifixion to put the crimes that the man had been convicted of over the cross. There were no crimes over the cross of Jesus. Pilate himself cowardly said, I find no fault in him. He symbolically washed his hands of the blood of Jesus saying, there's nothing wrong with this man. He knew it was a mockery of a trial. He knew it was a, an unjust execution. Jesus was one of the, probably the only man in human history to stand in front of people who hated him and ask them openly, which one of you accuses me of sin? 
Christ alone is the righteous dying for the unrighteous. And look what Peter says next. He did all that, that he might bring us to God. The point of the life and death of Jesus is to bring you into the presence of God who spoke his word to you, but from whom you are presently alienated as I was by my sin. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the spirit, but made, I'm sorry, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. If you know the rest of the Christian story, what might being made alive in the spirit refer to or remind you of? The resurrection. So here is the life of Jesus, the righteous life of Jesus, the singular death of Jesus for unrighteous people, and his resurrection in a single verse. There's the good news of the whole Bible. It was hinted at for the first time in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, and as you read from beginning to end in your Bible, the story gets louder and the story gets clearer. The good news is that Jesus died and rose from the dead in order to bring us to God, that he might bring us to God. That's God's love for you. If you don't know who God is, if God feels distant to you, if you feel that you've been told that God loves you, but you believe he couldn't possibly like you, if you feel chronically guilty and ashamed of your past, here is the good news in just a few words. Christ suffered once for sins. He's not chronically being crucified. He isn't dying over and over again. He suffered for sins one time. He was righteous and he did it for the unrighteous and he did all of that to bring you to God through his resurrection. And if that was all that Peter said, I wouldn't have had a nightmare. And Martin Luther wouldn't have been puzzled because 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 is a classic restatement of the entire Bible's message. Does that make sense so far? Yes. Why was I so nervous? Because of what came next. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Okay, now it's gotten weird. What are these spirits in prison? Why is Peter hearkening back so far back in human and biblical history and referring to the days of Noah and the ark and the flood? This is one of the things that Peter speaks of as a simple fact, but the Bible itself hardly mentions this specific passage is mentioned again in 2 Peter, and I'll show you that in a moment. There is a single verse in the dense, difficult little letter of Jude that mentions these same spirits in prison. And the backstory is even stranger all the way back in primeval human history in Genesis chapter 6. 
What's going on there? It's in the days of Noah, and the text simply reports that human life had grown so corrupt that Genesis 6 speaks of the catalyst, the tipping point from God's point of view when God's patience ran out and his justice was finally expressed. The world was corrupt, and it says that everyone on earth in the days of Noah continually thought only of what evil they could do. It mysteriously says of the sons of God coming down to the daughters of men. And Bible scholars, and I read to you Martin Luther's own confusion regarding this passage and these little passages that hint at what might be happening, have a lot of disagreement of, of exactly what that means, but read in context and reading what Peter said here in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in the next letter in 2 Peter chapter 2, it seems that the, the veil between human beings and angels was pulled back and fallen angels, which we have another term for, what do people normally call fallen angels? Demons. Not only came to the earth, but engaged in sexual immorality with human women, and that's how corrupt the earth had become. I know that Peter takes this as a simple fact, though he doesn't explain it, because of what he says in 2 Peter. Look over with me in 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4 says, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So there are those angels who sinned and who were imprisoned. He goes on to say, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. There aren't hardly any verses in the New Testament that are heavier than that. Peter, again, is citing ancient biblical history. If you're new to Bible reading, if you haven't read much of the Old Testament, these stories may be completely obscure to you. But hear Peter's point. Men and angels have sinned against God from the beginning, but God knows how to deliver the righteous. God knows how to deal with wickedness. God knows how to deal with evil. And he also knows how to rescue and save people. Evil is something that is not often spoken of, except in the political realm. Churches, unusually and lamentably, are one of the last places you'll usually hear about evil and sin. But let's just bring it down to the kitchen table level. In life as you experience it right now in our United States, are you aware of how much evil and wickedness there is in the world? Do you want justice to be done? For who? Justice for them. What would you like for yourself? Mercy, forgiveness, love, peace, righteousness. 
That's the story of the gospel. These strange stories that Peter mentions twice in passing in two of his letters that Jude mentions speak about something in ancient times, apparently before God made human beings, he made holy angels, powerful spirits, unlike God, created by God to serve him and to love him. And eventually we're told in Hebrews to serve believers as well. But those angelic, from that angelic group, some rebelled against God and some were so wicked that God dealt with them immediately and imprisoned them. And there in prison, they apparently remain to this day. So with all of that in mind, let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3 and see if we can make a little more sense of this strange story. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He did all that, Peter says, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and did what? What's it say? He proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Help a pastor out, because this is a little more interactive than the first service. I learned some things in the first service. Have any of you ever heard that Jesus had proclaimed something to fallen angels? Just raise your hand if you had. Small group. Why is that? Because the death and the resurrection of Jesus are so central that without meaning to, we ignore and seldom pay attention to the Bible, what the Bible says, and pastors seldom teach. I haven't since the last time I taught First Peter. What happened in the three days between the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus? You see, in the Christian calendar, we have a Good Friday service. And it is solemn and reverent and sad. And we think and sometimes visually remember the cross of Christ. We remember the righteous dying for the unrighteous. We're grateful that the Son of God would die for sinners to bring us to God. And then we go home from the Good Friday service, and between Good Friday and Sunday, what do we do? Not much. It's pretty quiet. Peter is telling you something fascinating. That between the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus himself did something. What did he do? It says, in being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, he went somewhere and he proclaimed to spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. What is Jesus doing here? These are the difficult statements that I've have pondered and apparently even had nightmares over. Here's what Peter wants to tell us. The victory of Jesus over death is so complete that he announced it even to imprisoned fallen angels before rising from the dead. We go home from our Good Friday service and we're quiet and we don't do much. Peter makes an astonishing statement. That in centuries earlier, when mankind was at its worst, and fallen angels were so wicked that some of them were immediately judged by God and imprisoned by God, Jesus 
remaining actually dead in his body because he actually died, but being made alive in the spirit, went to the place of the dead and announced his absolute victory to these fallen angels. It's an astonishing thing to think about. It's a beautiful thing to imagine. That as Peter said earlier in the letter, angels had longed to look into the good news of Jesus. Jesus went to the place of the dead and announced his coming resurrection and his already present victory to the Old Testament saints like Abraham and Moses who had prophesied of him and waited for him. He announced and celebrated his victory with holy angels that remained with God, and he announced his victory to fallen angels that God had already judged. If you want it in simple football terms, between Good Friday and between Resurrection Sunday, Jesus spiked the football. He announced that he had already won, and I want you to hear it in his own words. Look in the last book of the Bible with me. Revelation chapter 1. If you have, as I do here, a red-letter Bible, sometimes editors put the words of Jesus in red ink so that we can pay attention and understand that he's the one speaking. Here's the Apostle John's experience about 100 years A.D., about the year 90-something A.D., Look in verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a, long, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I guess so. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys, what's it say? Of death and Hades. This is all symbolism, of course, but Jesus is saying to John, unveiling the glory that Jesus has always had as God, John, I own death itself. I have the keys. Keys represent then and now authority. You get keys to a place when you're authorized to be there. Jesus owns, Jesus holds the keys of death and the grave. He's in charge of everything, and his victory is so complete that he announced it to all the dead. The righteous dead who longed to see his coming, the unrighteous dead who had rebelled against God and even fallen imprisoned angels. That is enormously good news for you, because you don't have to fear death. And if you're suffering... And if you're being made to submit to people who are wicked and make your life difficult, especially if they're difficult against you because you're a Christian, you're on the side of Christ. You belong to Him. He's already conquered the thing that troubles you and threatens you the most, which is death itself. 
This is the good news that Peter is explaining to us in this difficult story. The victory of Jesus is absolute. He's already conquered death, and he even went and proclaimed that to fallen angels. And then, of course, Peter makes the passage even a little bit more difficult. Look back with me in 1 Peter chapter 3. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. They were in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Does that story ring any bells? Why is this difficult? Because of verse 21. Peter is tying two stories together. One shrouded in the darkest, most remote parts of human history. A worldwide rebellion against God, both human and spiritual, by fallen angels. And Peter calmly announces God imprisoned those angels. And when Jesus, between Jesus' death and resurrection, his victory being complete, he went and announced his victory to all the dead, including those fallen angels that God had already judged. All of this happens, Peter says in verse 20, in the days of Noah, when Noah's family alone was saved through the flood. And here's verse 21, which of course is a difficult one. Baptism, which corresponds to this, in other words, which corresponds to the flood of Noah and the ark safely saving Noah's family. Baptism, which corresponds to this, what's it say there? Now saves you. And that phrase has caused a lot of questions and a lot of confusion. Pastorally speaking, I can't tell you how many people in the 30-some years I've been pastoring have said, Pastor, before I die, I need to make sure I get baptized. I need to make sure I wash my sins away. I need to make sure that I'm saved. I'm afraid that I won't be saved because I haven't been baptized. And if you look at verse 21... All on its own, those three words, now saves you, four words, baptism, now saves you, you would think, well, absolutely, we better baptize you. If you're, if you're converted in the last moments of life and there's no opportunity for you to be baptized, perhaps you'll die outside of the grace of God. That's the confusion, and that is the specific teaching of at least a few churches that say that baptism actually saves you. So I want to help you understand this passage. Remember, this is all good news. What Peter is actually explaining is that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has brought you to God. What makes this passage hard is he chooses a strange story from the ancient world to emphasize that the victory of Jesus is so complete that Jesus even announced it to demons that were already imprisoned by God. And then he says, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, that's the key phrase. What Peter is telling you here is that baptism is a picture. Much as the ark brought just a few families safely through the water, Christian baptism is now a picture of life and death in a single symbol. 
Have you seen me baptize somebody here at the church? How many of have you have witnessed a Christian baptism where a pastor asks somebody, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? And then we do something really odd if you think about it. In this baptistry right here behind me, you've seen me take both adults and children and put them, where do I put them? Under the water. That's a little terrifying, isn't it? In what other context would you allow a grown man to take hold of you and put you under water? What's going to happen if I don't pull that guy up? He'll drown. I mean, we'll have a fight first. He'll probably, he'll probably live through it, but by his own hand, by his own strength. And in fact, the pastor actually using biblical language actually talks about life and death while he baptizes the person. Here's what it sounds like. Bill, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Yes, I have. Upon your public profession of faith, my brother, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You are buried in this water. And the pastor usually says, in the likeness, as a picture of the death of Jesus. And then immediately, because nobody's very comfortable underwater for long, he says, and you are raised to walk in new life, or you are raised in the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Peter is explaining here. Baptism is a symbol. It's a picture that corresponds to the experience of the family of Noah. And it saves you. I know he's not talking about water baptism actually saving a person because he says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, getting your body wet is not going to save you. In what sense does baptism save you? When you come to Christ and you obey him in baptism, it goes on to say you have an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, our baptism is a picture of our salvation. Just in the same way that Noah and his family were brought safely through the flood, we are brought safely home to God. If anybody could be outside the ark, if you were outside the ark, you're about to die. But in seeing the ark in the midst of the flood, it was at the same time a picture of life and death. Life to those inside, death to those who were outside. Baptism in the same way is a picture of what saved us. It's not our judgment and it's not our death. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that cleanses us. In other words, we're cleansed by the work of Jesus, not the water of baptism. And we have a good conscience before God, not because we promise to do better, but because he has saved us. Let me be really pastoral and help you look in closing at the end of verse 21. It says that baptism makes an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that the Christian who comes to Christ and the Christian specifically who is baptizing to him is appealing to God for God to cleanse that person's conscience. It's not that you're trying to cleanse it yourself. It's not that you're promising to do better. I think the human conscience is the crisis of the 21st century. 
I don't talk to anybody these days as a pastor and usually even as a friend who isn't deeply troubled in their conscience. We are using more coping mechanisms, including medication, and all kinds of things, both some are fun and some are terrible, to quiet our conscience, to help us forget the past, to help us give us a brighter hope for the future. And what Peter is saying here, when you come to Christ, it's not your good deed in being baptized that will cleanse your conscience. No, you're appealing to God through the resurrection of Jesus. You clear my conscience. That's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus died for the sake of your conscience. The shame and the guilt and the insufficiency, the knowingness of your sin, the things that you know you've come up short, the things you don't want anyone in this room or anyone in the world to know, they're all known to God and He cleanses your conscience and gives you a clean new life through the death through the death, descent, and resurrection of his son. What difference does all this make to us? This is immensely practical. Number one, Jesus lived and died and descended to the grave and rose from the, rose from the dead all to do one thing, to bring us to God. Listen to it again. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The point of these strange stories is to give you the security that Jesus loved you enough to descend, if you will, in the words of the ancient church, into the water three different times. First into the mother, into the womb of his mother, Mary. Then in the waters of his own baptism by John the Baptist. And later into the waters of death itself from which he emerged victorious so that you could approach God and so that the songs that we sang before I got up here with this sermon would be true for you. That you speak to God not as a distant idea or a menacing judge so that you can speak to God as your own father. And you know if you run to God, he'll welcome you with open arms. In the parable of Jesus, that, Je that the Father will see you coming and not only wait for you, but that the Father amazingly, mercifully will run to you and welcome you and reward you and call you his own son. Jesus lived, died, descended to the grave and rose from the dead all to bring us to God. And our security when we suffer is that Jesus already rules over all of creation. Look, please, at verse 22. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been, what's it say? Subjected to him. The reason Peter calls his readers to suffer well and to keep submitting wherever God tells them is this. No amount of suffering on your part and no amount of submission on your part whether it is owed or not whether it is unjust or not will change this simple fact Jesus already rules the battles are still raging but the wars already over Jesus brought us to God so we may still suffer but church we are already safe that is our security when we suffer let's pray <laughs> Let's stand together and pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your certain victory over death.
It's not something we hope for, it's something we already celebrate. And it was so overwhelming and so complete that you descended to the place of the dead to announce that you had already won. And prophets who had only spoken of you in the future tense heard your victory from your own lips. And evil knew it was defeated and saw your victory displayed even before your resurrection when you were completely vindicated. Hey friend, you may not hear a more complicated sermon in all your life. Let me get it down to the brass tacks to the basic question. Are you certain that Jesus has brought you to God? Is Jesus your Savior? Jesus lived, died, descended to the grave, announced his victory, and then rose from the dead to seal it. All to bring you to God. Has he? Are you certain that God is your Father, or do you just hope so? Your eternal life. Your life with God. Is it a hope so or a no so kind of situation? If you're not certain, I'm going to invite you to turn to Jesus right now and ask him to save you. Tell him that you trust him, his life, his death, his descent, his resurrection to save you. And Christian, whatever you're going through, and our church family is suffering. There are families in this church enduring more than I've ever seen people endure in life funeral here just yesterday. We have people gravely ill, in a lot of pain, hospitalized while we gather here in our building. Over that brutal reality, Jesus rules. Jesus is eternal life. He has conquered death. When death overtakes us, it'll only be for victory. That's our security when we suffer. Lord, we love you and we thank you we ask God that you would draw us close to you, that we would rest in the fact that you have brought us to God and our safety is in your absolute unrivaled rule over all that exists. In Jesus' name, Crosspoint says, Amen. God bless you.